When my friend Yazid Ibrahim was 16 years old, he moved from the Middle East, from Jordan, to a city in central California. The first few weeks of high school were nerve-wracking. I remember my very first uh, lunch mm-hmm. with my very first American friends. Um, they were like, hey, you want to grab lunch together? And I was really happy. You know, these are the first couple of friends I've made in the U.S. They'd grab lunch at the school's cafeteria. Yazid and his two new friends moved through the line and ordered their meals. And then it was my turn. And I ordered a burger and then I said, I will cover it for everyone. I got you guys, don't worry about it. His two friends looked at him like, oh, amazing. They were like, sure, wow, that's so nice of you. I was a little bit surprised too that they, you know, didn't really push back at all. Then the next day, he and his high school friends are back in the lunch line. And again, they ordered, he ordered. And then I said, no worries, guys, like, I got you. <laughs> and, you know, part of me, part of me was hoping for some pushback. Of you know, course. This, is the, this is like the second day. But instead... They just were like, oh, man, like, thanks. That, that's so nice of you. You appreciate it. <laughs> like, wow, like, what oh, a guy. <laughs> I'm like, wow, that's odd, okay. Because it traditionally, um, in like Arab culture, it is almost expected that whenever you grab food with friends, even with strangers, that you at least offer to pay for their meals. Right. The next day, usually, they will try to fight you over paying for your meal to kind of like, you know, um, push it forward type of thing. Right. But that did not happen. Mm-hmm. And then the third day, um, they go and order their meals, and mm-hmm. I'm just like standing there having this ethical dilemma of like, should I give up this like tradition of paying for other people? And then I noticed that they were actually almost looking at me, expecting for me to pay. As someone who shares the same cultural background as Yazid, this makes total sense to me that he'd expect some pushback. In Arab culture, like a lot of cultures, it can be considered disrespectful, almost even insulting, if you don't offer to pay. At the same time, though, I've been a hungry high schooler before, so I can imagine his friends were thinking like, oh, wow, I found a new friend who wants to pay for my food. I'm not going to question that. But for Yazid, this gesture, it's not actually about the money. It's a way of saying, hey, I care about you. That's why, in a way, in some cultures, if you don't do that in return... It's almost like you're saying you're not really worthy of like respect and love. You don't really mean a lot to me. So that really was a cultural lesson for life. Um, it just tells me that maybe the language that we speak is a little bit different. And it's, it's totally fine, but I'm not going to continue to cover your meal if for you it doesn't really mean much. I'm Eddie Mechreis, and you're listening to This is Uncomfortable, a show from Marketplace about life and how money messes with it. Generosity can be a bit of a Rorschach test. One person's kind gesture can be another person's insult. And not just across cultures, like even in intimate relationships, one person's interpretation of kindness might look entirely different than someone else's. Today on the show, we've got two stories about this super well-intentioned concept that can sometimes go awry. The first story is about a couple with conflicting views on generosity. 
Then later, a story about a woman who has no reason to believe people will help her until she becomes part of a community she never intended to join. There is a particular fight Ayana and her husband, Tim Sumner, have once a year, every year. Well, it happen- like it happens every Christmas. That's the thing. What are we talking about? We're talking about the Christmas, the Christmas fight. Which one? Right, exactly. Essentially, the fight is this. Ayana likes to keep Christmas simple. I call her the Grinch. <laughs> and Tim likes to make Christmas into a big deal. Like, a really big deal. Fancy gifts, decorations, trips, the whole shebang. Like, take just the tree. He has to have this real tree, and every year, I swear it gets bigger every year. And this year, it literally touched the ceiling. And I was like, I am going to cut the top of that damn tree off. It's touching the ceiling. This is ridiculous. How much is that tree? He always kind of, like, lowballs it. You know, like, oh, it was only $85. Tim, how much was it? I... Oh, man, I don't really remember. No, I don't remember, but but I'm I'm pretty sure it was over two hundred dollars. The tree? Are you freaking kidding I'm me? I'm pretty sure it was over two hundred dollars. See, and he's like, oh, it's like a hundred bucks. That was an inflation yeah. tree, though. Their biggest Christmas fight happened last year. Ayana had just had her second baby, who, as you can hear, is making her podcast debut in this story. We named her after Christmas for for Tim. For the yeah, record. so her middle name is Noel. Uh, yeah, which means Christmas. Wow. And, yeah, Ayanna, let me have that one. <laughs> I would have just named her Christmas. When Samara Noel was born, money was tight. Ayanna didn't work during her pregnancy, and the family was still on one income while she recovered. And of course, they racked up all those new baby expenses. They also had legal bills, because Tim is adopting Ayanna's son from a previous relationship. So to Ayanna, it just seemed like a no-brainer. No extravagant gifts this Christmas. We're doing it my way, and surely Tim will understand. Ayana approached him one day, a few weeks before the holiday. Hey, you know, I really don't want to do gifts. I'm so exhausted. I feel like my body's taking forever to heal. Um, I really wish we could just skip Christmas altogether this year. Like, I know that's not going to happen, but that's literally my dream. If we could just pretend like there was no Christmas this year. And Tim is like, Yeah, I get that. But it's the most magical time of the year. It's Christmas. (laughs) (laughs) Plus, he was earning more money now, around $75,000. To him, this year was the year he felt like he could finally treat the people he loved to something special. So they decided to compromise. And I think we settled on like two gifts or something. Ayana was like, great, finally, we're on the same page for once. That is, until one day, about a month before Christmas, they're sitting in their living room when Tim turns to Ayana and says, Listen, I've got an idea. I know your dad's an avid fisherman, and, and uh, his girlfriend is, it loves to fish just as much as he does, and really everyone in your family uh, likes to fish. But he told Ayana, none of them have actually been saltwater fishing. So what if for Christmas, I charter a boat for all of us? Like, it'd be the perfect gift. This is definitely going to be something that everyone enjoys. I was like, it is a really good idea, but you're not paying for everybody. Tim was like, but it's not a gift if you don't pay for everyone. The price tag wasn't pretty, not for their tight budget. To charter a boat and take the whole family on a fishing trip, it would come out to at least $500, which would mean... That's that's pretty much the whole thing there. For $500... 
you're definitely not going to be able to get any other gifts. So they talk it through, and Ayana convinces Tim. This year is not the year to charter a boat. I pulled the plug on it. I said, it's not going to happen. It'd be fine, but it's not going to, I can't afford it. Case closed. But as the days pass, the idea of this fishing trip just would not leave Tim's mind. It felt like more than a gift. It was an experience. Time together they'd remember forever. A few days before Christmas, Tim noticed that the charter boat slots were quickly filling up. And you know that phrase, better to ask for forgiveness than permission? Well, Christmas spirit just got into me and I had to, yeah, I had to do it. So I come home and I tell you, I say, uh, hey, you know, we're, we're going on the trip. Yeah, I booked it. Yeah, I booked it. And then you're like, I just really think this is important. We haven't met your dad's girlfriend. We haven't met your brother's girlfriend. We haven't spoken to your brother all year. What'd you say, Ayana? I, I don't. I mean, some expletive, right? Well, you're like, like, I, thought you, I thought we can't afford it. <laughs> Here's what I said. Here's what I said. Well, we can't afford it. With a caveat. They could afford it if they give up the only thing Ayana really wanted that year. Tim tells her, You know that massage you really want. I can't get that for you. <laughs> we have to get that for you later. Ayana had asked for a spa day to help ease the aches and pains of having just given birth and raising a newborn. But now that was off the table. And I said, fine, my body's in pain. That's fine. I'm going to be, I'm going to look like freaking Jabba the Hutt forever for having your kid, but that's fine. Ayana was mad, not just because she thought they'd settled this, not even because it meant that she couldn't get a massage. Her aversion to extravagant Christmas gifts actually runs much deeper, all the way back to her childhood. The problem is that Tim's love of extravagant Christmases also goes back to his childhood. And when you have two people with two completely opposite childhood experiences, it makes sense that it would produce some of the most entrenched adult relationship fights, like a Christmas fight that repeats itself year after year. When Ayana thinks back to her family, My dad is the worst Grinch of all. Growing up, Ayana's family didn't have a lot of money. So her dad would rail against Christmas, saying that it was all about corporate greed, just big business pushing the idea that the best way to show your family you love them is by buying things. I grew up hearing my dad say all these terrible things about Christmas. But then I realized, I'm like, you know, what probably happened is he had less money. And so he felt like he had to, you know, he had to have some story, right? This alibi for why there was no Christmas anymore. So before she married Tim, when Ayana had her first child, Luca, and money was tight, she also downplayed Christmas. When it was just myself and Luca, I was not going to tell him about Santa Claus. Like, my family did not do that. And I just kind of feel like once you tell your child there's a Santa Claus, you have to do it. She worried about setting that expectation. Like, what happens if she lost her job or took on some unexpected debt and couldn't afford gifts again the next year? So now what? Oh, Santa Claus is sick? Like, what do you say? Ayana didn't want her son to have his own Christmas baggage. She didn't want to repeat her dad's mistakes. What's your response hearing that, Tim? It's definitely humbling and making me realize how how privileged I was. I definitely grew up upper middle class, unlike you, Ayana. And so there were never any financial issues for me with the holidays. 
So for for the finances being an issue, that that never even crossed my radar. Even though Tim's parents were separated, his whole family would get together every Christmas at his grandparents' home. His parents weren't the most affectionate, and so the main way they showed him love was through gifts and building memories. And so those those are really precious moments that I try to recreate and at least be responsible for making sure my kids experience as well. So here Ayana and Tim were, these many years later. For Tim, gifts a symbol of love. For Ayana, gifts a source of stress. In a way, they're trying to do what their younger selves would have wanted. And last year, the spirit of young Tim won out. On the day after Christmas, the whole family gathered at the Gulf of Mexico. It was a cold day by Florida standards. They met the captain and set off on the boat. We get there and the captain is like, if Barney was a real person, but like drank and cursed, he was just this big jolly guy. And we get on the boat and he's like, this is what we're gonna do. We're gonna go out this many feet and then we're gonna do that. And every time you get a fish, you yell, fish on. Fish on, fish on. And by the end of the day, we're all yelling fish on every five minutes. And like he he runs around the boat screaming and everyone's like celebrating anytime somebody catches something. They'd like give us like these lessons on a fish. So like someone will catch a really cool looking fish and we're like, what's that? And he's like, this is a blue eyed guppy flip a dip, you know, and then (laughs) we talked about it and it was so fun. It was a complete blast. Every single person caught a fish. Um, wow. uh, yeah, my my son had never been fishing before. He, he caught uh, he caught a little grouper. He caught a lot of fish actually. We took the fish home. We cooked it. We ate it. Was it. So good. Yeah, it, it was, was so, so good. good. <laughs> yeah, in fact, in fact, it was so good. I guess I you you could tell it, but it was so good that you were the only person who was not fishing yeah, because fish. you had the baby. Yeah, you and you never done it before. But you, yeah, I don't like. Fishing. But you now, you want to go back next year and. Oh and hell yeah! You... <laughs> I'm fishing next time. Yeah, because because the, the fish was so fish. good. Next year, as in the trip that caused their latest fight, is on its way to becoming a family tradition. This is the thing about compromise, even when it's forced compromise. When you step into someone else's version of things, sometimes, but not always, you find out you like how things look from their point of view. Ayana's perspective on her husband's gifts has changed a bit, in part out of a sense of futility. You know, it's annoying, really. But I mean, it's like it happens every year, right? But also... I guess, I honestly, they always do pay off. I have to be honest. But you know what? We struggled until probably March. The fishing trip put them in the red for a few months. Like it meant that they didn't have the $200 they needed to sign up their son for basketball. In a way, Ayana was right. They weren't in the best financial position to go all out for Christmas. But for Tim, it's about more than money. It's about how life is fleeting. So financial sacrifices are worthwhile if the outcome is a great memory with people you care about. And he hopes she'll keep coming around to that. It definitely makes me sad to to think what I thought was just a unanimously good time for most people, that it, it could really trigger a lot of financial anxiety from your childhood. You know, partially, I think it's my mission to, to try to reverse the curse here. They're planning to go on the fishing trip this Christmas. But if they do run into a financial mishap, 
Ayana's hoping that Tim will be willing to step into her shoes and do what she wished her dad had done, which is make the ordinary feel a little more magical. Like, this is the blanket that we watch our Christmas movies under every year. You know what I mean? Like, let's make our Christmas popcorn. It's total easy things that don't cost an arm and a leg. Going out of your way to make a day special for the people you love can cost hundreds of dollars. Or it can come from a fuzzy quilt blanket and a special bowl of buttery popcorn. After the break, when your world falls apart, generosity can come from unexpected places. So before we get into this next story, just a heads up that it touches on domestic violence. How how would your friends and family describe you? (laughs) My friends and family would describe me probably as an um, eternal optimist. (laughs) Ever since she was a kid, Carissa has been the kind of person who looks at a problem and thinks, surely there's a solution. Like... We shouldn't give up, hold on to hope, you know. Throughout this interview, you can hear the optimism in her voice, even as she talks about one of the hardest things she's been through. Carissa grew up watching Xena Warrior Princess, that 90s show about the kick-ass heroine who defended the helpless and never gave up the fight, no matter how fierce her opponent. Carissa was obsessed. I was that little girl running around trying to be Xena. Carissa was raised in a strict Christian community where questioning authority, especially in the church, didn't go over well. You were supposed to wear dresses because you're not supposed to wear that which pertaineth to a man. So um, I wore uh, pants and, you know, it was it was controversy. I thought it was stupid that women couldn't wear pants. She was a devout Christian. She just didn't get what her church had against pants. That kind of attitude, challenging what a proper godly woman should or shouldn't do, didn't fly. Curse's dad also thought a secular feminist show like Xena was a bad influence. My dad basically was like, this is paganism. He thought they were mocking Christianity and stuff like that. And that, like, he didn't want that influence. And then he set down the rule that there's no more Xena. She still secretly watched sometimes. Throughout her childhood, though, from her parents, from her church... She got the message loud and clear. If you don't stop being so loud, no man's going to want to marry you. Men don't like opinionated women. Her mom would explicitly tell her that. She'd also say, but if you become the right type of woman, then you will attract a wonderful man of God and have a good, proper life with him. And what young girl wouldn't want a nice husband and a good life? Carissa did want that for herself, but she also wanted a Christian man who'd treat her like an equal. I figured we'd both go off to work, right? Doing good, positive things for humanity and then come home and like have someone to talk to over dinner Mm -hmm. and have um, really a battle buddy, a person who, you know, whether it's me and you save the world or me and you against the world, like it's me and you. She kept this dream in the back of her head as she graduated high school, went into the military, finished college, Until finally, she met her husband when she was 26. 
He was 20 years her senior. He was putting flooring down at my parents' house, and he and my parents went to church together, and I had just gotten back from college and needed a place to stay. Chris is the type of person who thinks if someone is doing work around your house, you should offer them something to eat and drink. So she made him an omelet. I ended up sitting down at the kitchen table Mm -hmm. with him, and we got into a theological debate. Mm. Yeah. About what? Yeah. Um, Everything. It was three hours. Oh, my gosh. (laughs) (laughs) Afterwards, he, like, shook my hand and was like, thank you for sparring with me. And it felt like, oh, he respected me. And after the military, I was so used to men just not respecting my ideas at all that I really appreciated that. Even though they didn't agree on everything, he was definitely more traditional than her, she liked that for once she'd met a man who liked her fighting spirit. Chris had joined his Bible study, and he started pursuing her romantically. A year and a half later, they were engaged. Marriage meant that I was finally the type of woman that I was supposed to be. I could finally, you know, say that I've accomplished this. She'd proven her parents wrong. She found a man who wanted to hear her opinions and talk about them. And he was a man of God. But before they'd even married, cracks in her relationship started to show. There were a few times when he got um, angry while uh, we were engaged. I thought it was normal because um, prior military, I knew a lot of different spouses who their husbands had PTSD and they threw stuff. And so I just thought that's how men acted. (laughs) That's just how men process their emotions. As long as he doesn't hurt me, it's okay, she'd tell herself. And besides, God would never let a good Christian man hurt me. So she went forward with the wedding planning. We were sitting in my parents' living room on the couch. I think we had just had dinner with my parents, and we were just discussing what we would want for a wedding, basically making a list, you know, things that we need. Money was tight, and so Carissa wanted to make a wedding registry. She wanted just a few things to make her feel like the house he already owned belonged to her, too. You know, things like a spoon rest or curtains. Just kind of having that connection to my friends and family through the items that were going to decorate my house. Okay. And he basically was like, I don't want to take advantage of our friends and family. Like, I can provide whatever we need. Like, God can provide whatever we need. And so you you sort of caved and said, okay, fine. Yeah. If you're a good Christian woman, sweet and obedient— then God is going to take care of you. You shouldn't ask others for things. Don't be so materialistic. That's the sentiment she was raised with, and now she was hearing it from her future husband. After the wedding, Chris's friends and family thought she was in newlywed bliss. But her husband's anger problems only got worse. Being the person that I am, I was looking up books. I was trying to understand what a Christian man was supposed to be. Um, In my head, uh, I was, you know, thinking that he is a flawed human. He's a sinner, just like myself, and that I needed to show him mercy. 
be understanding. And, you know, um, in my mind, I mean, I was on the internet, like, am I, am I crazy? Like, is it me? Then early on in their marriage, her husband crossed an obvious line. He became physically violent. Carissa coped the way she'd been taught to. Praying a lot out loud sometimes. Especially after violence occurred, oftentimes I'd be turning to God and asking him for deliverance, I suppose. Carissa would try the strategies she'd learned from those books. Set boundaries, don't engage, stay calm. But things didn't get any better. Everything always felt so tense. She remembers one day they were driving in the car, and they were having a conversation about women's modesty when Carissa countered his argument. Well, in different cultures, modesty is different. And then him being like, should I let you dress like a slut? And I was like, I'm done with this conversation. I was like, you can keep talking, but I'm just not going to say anything. And I I was completely monotone, and he just flipped out. And I was like... That's when I said, oh, it's not me. And after I got back to his house, I I packed a bag and I left. She moved out of his house, packed all of her belongings in big plastic bins, and filed for divorce. I was sitting in the place that I'm renting now, and it was just so still and quiet. And I just had felt like I, I hadn't been in stillness like that in literally years And uh, it was this weird combination of peace and death (laughs) that I was thinking of. Peace and what? Sorry. Oh, death. Hmm. I felt like uh, the living dead. I felt like a zombie. I felt like I had to find my spirit again. And Hmm. so the journey began. (laughs) She borrowed some furniture from a friend, but the new house was sparse. Most of my stuff was still in boxes because I hadn't unpacked yet. It was snowing outside, like everything was wrapped up in a blanket of white. And my financial situation was I was living off my GI Bill and barely making it through school. Were you thinking at that point, like, let me reach out to family and friends and see if they can be of any help? I really didn't want to tell people, Mm -hmm. but obviously (laughs) I was going to have to. She didn't want to have to deal with people's judgments. I think it was just like shame. It's like God hates divorce. That's like a huge, huge thing in Christianity. I was going to be a divorced woman. I felt shame because being beaten or whatever, like you obviously have bruises and stuff and people like pity you especially because I'm a I'm a veteran right like I'm I'm this supposed to be this strong woman and so you know so that kind of those those kind of feelings of shame just disappointing religious people disappointing feminists just disappointing everyone she was also trying to reconcile who she was in the marriage with who she'd wanted to be In a desperate attempt to make the relationship work, she'd internalized all those messages she'd heard as a kid from her family and church. And in doing so, she'd quieted the more authentic, more rebellious side of herself. I think there was always, inside of me, there was always been the little girl who loved Xena Warrior Princess. This woman who 
really believed in um, women's rights and was always yeah. trying to empower women. And then there was that the the internal struggle of that being against God <laughs> mm. because men are supposed to be leaders. And that desire that I had was basically from the devil. In the weeks after the separation, Carissa was barely leaving the house and had a hard time shopping for herself, terrified she might run into her ex at the store. And then I think it was around March that I actually got a TikTok because I was so sad, like, every single day. And then I found, like, religious abuse TikTok. And then I found domestic violence TikTok. And from there, I found military sexual trauma TikTok. And I was Mm. like, all right, there are others, you know. After so much isolation and shame, she'd found a community. Krista started making videos of her own. Hello, TikTok. I have about 165 followers right now, and I'm super thankful, and I'm really glad that we have this little community. Sitting there in her living room chair, Krista started to open up. My domestic abuse is the first trauma that I've really been willing to talk about, but I feel like I'm eventually going to speak about all of them. As she grew a following and started spending more time on the app, she discovered something a lot of creators were doing. They'd share an Amazon wish list with their followers. And Krista realized you could ask for things even if you weren't engaged or pregnant. And people, kind strangers, would just give them to you. I think that that kind of is where it started. I said, well, I'm not going to do an Amazon wish list. I'm going to do a registry. A registry but for her divorce. And you know, I never thought of this before hearing her story, but honestly, it makes so much sense. Like, we're totally fine with people starting registries for their marriages at a moment in time when people are combining their money and all of their stuff. But why not at a moment when people suddenly don't have a blender anymore or half of their furniture? So Carissa decided she'd ask for things that she would have put on her wedding registry if her ex had let her have one. She looked around her new empty apartment. She needed curtains, some sheets. She also just wanted new things, you know, to create more positive associations with her stuff. I asked for a purse, curtains. I asked for bedding. I asked for spice jars, the towels. Other items were more symbolic, like jars for craft supplies. I make jewelry, and I was getting back into that, which was empowering because... He believed that having your ears pierced was worshiping the devil. So, yeah, yeah. After she'd compiled all the items and made the registry, it was finally time to share it. She was nervous. I just, uh, I don't know. I just didn't know um, what to really expect. She posted it on Facebook and waited to see how her church community would respond to a divorce registry. Nobody really said anything. I think there was like maybe one or two likes. It sounds like really nobody in your in your personal life got you anything from it. No. When you go through intimate partner violence, there's the isolation that the mm-hmm. person is causing. And so I there was really no one that I was as close to as I had once been. Only one person from her real life bought her something. A special item off the registry, a Xena box set. It was extremely, like, poetic justice to reclaim those DVDs. 
Carissa also shared her registry to TikTok with that newfound community of strangers. Like, as I'm making this, I'm super anxious about it. I feel like if people know the things that I want, then they know the lifestyle that I want to live. I'm really nervous about being judged. But the reason I'm doing this is because we need to normalize divorce registries. Right away, strangers, mostly women, responded with dozens and dozens of comments like, Congratulations, I am so happy for you. Or, a divorce registry is brilliant. I wish I'd done that. Just overwhelmingly positive feedback. Then, not long after she shared that, packages of towels and kitchen items started arriving at Corsa's door. Fresh new things, without any bad memories attached. It was just kind of enlivening to my spirit because, uh, I don't know, everything I'd been through, it just reminded me that people still care. After years of hearing about the importance of self-sacrifice, of not putting too much value on materialistic stuff, Carissa finally believed she deserved things, and she'd been brave enough to ask for them. I had put a colorful kind of gem-toned of like blues, purples, and like burgundies uh, comforter and pillowcase on Mm. my divorce registry. And this fellow domestic violence survivor Mm. who I didn't know, she'd never reached out to me or anything, but she got me that. And the note, it says something along the lines of like, I know what it's like to need these things. And so that she wanted to do that. I was teary-eyed. Carissa knows that the struggle she faced, starting over after domestic abuse, isn't unique to her. But all the generosity she received, she's determined to pay it forward. That one was like, wow. And, you know, I just thought, I'm going to do that for someone someday. Someday, because it's not ending. It's like an epidemic. But someday some woman who is um, just totally... uh, crushed of spirit and willpower, I'm going to get her a comforter. (laughs) Depending on the generosity of someone, whether it's a stranger or even a partner, it's vulnerable. In a way, it forces us to accept that it's okay for people to nurture us, despite what we may have been told when we were younger. Being generous can also be nerve-wracking, like my friend Yazid, who wondered if he'd be stuck paying for everyone's lunch all year long. Or Ayana and Tim, who, like many of us, have to balance being giving with also being financially realistic. But I think when done without expectations or judgment, generosity, giving and receiving, can feel like a trust fall. Sometimes you're the one falling, and sometimes you're holding others up. that is all for our show this week if you have any thoughts about this story or just want to shoot us a note you can always email me and the team at uncomfortable at marketplace.org we love hearing from y'all also do not forget to sign up for our weekly newsletter if you haven't already there are always really great recs in there for things to cook or listen to or watch in this week's newsletter i write about my own cross-cultural experiences with generosity you can sign up for that at marketplace.org slash comfort And be sure to tune in next week. We've got an episode you won't want to miss. I'm living a fake romance. And not only that it's a fake romance, it's a fake romance that I am paying for. Next time on This Is Uncomfortable, when one woman suspects she's being scammed, she goes deep into the shadows of the internet on a mission 
to outsmart scammers. I don't want a scammer dead. I want a scammer in jail for what he has done. But sometimes a quest for justice takes over your life. That's next week on This is Uncomfortable. This episode was lead produced by me, Alice Wilder, and hosted by Rima Crace. The episode got additional support from producers Camila Kerwin and Peter Balanon-Rosen. Zoe Saunders is our senior producer. Our editor is Karen Duffin. Markay Green is our digital producer with help from Tony Wagner. Our intern is Kunal Patel. Sound design and audio engineering by Drew Jostad. Donna Tam is the director of On Demand. Francesca Levy is the executive director of Digital. And our theme music is by Wonderly. This is Uncomfortable is supported in part by the Cy Sims Foundation, partnering with organizations and people working for a better and more just future since 1985. All right, we'll catch y'all next week.